Imagine you are in the Walmart parking lot in a rush and one of those petition people come up to you with their clipboard. Hey, are you tired of politics as usual? I'm sorry, I'm going to get some disinfectant. I don't have time for this. Well, you know, I, are you concerned about how our government is handling COVID right now? Uh, that's why I'm going to get the disinfectant. We just need registered voters to sign this petition so we can get on the ballot so that in November... You Katie Fahey is that person chasing you down. She is also the person who, at age 27, set out to change the constitution of her home state, Michigan, and won. Just an ordinary citizen from Michigan, and you, you thought you would just try to go up against an entire system. A real hero in this movement for reform. You are the one who slays the dragon. She got on the ballot, and she won by 10 points. She amended the Constitution in Michigan. There's no more gerrymandering. And I didn't know how to do any of it. I had no idea how to write constitutional language, no idea how to gather signatures. But, like, we live in a country and in a state where we're allowed to try. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Katie Fahey came out of nowhere. Her day job, getting trash sorted, sometimes by climbing into it. But then, overnight, she became a pro-democracy activist. Tired of politicians rigging the system of making votes not count, she stood up and built a movement, Voters Not Politicians. We talk about what it takes to recruit thousands of volunteers, to raise millions of dollars, all while the establishment bets against you. Katie Fahey was incensed. It was two days after the 2016 election, a heated time in America, you may recall. But she wasn't focused on the candidates. She was upset about the process, specifically gerrymandering. Most people don't know what it is or it gives them like an instant flashback to like history class and that they're like, <laughs> I'm super not interested. <laughs> so true. Gerrymandering is basically when politicians draw highly selective lines around electoral districts specifically to benefit one political party, their own, over the other. It's named after the first guy to do it, Elbridge Jerry, and the funny shape of the district he created, a salamander, Jerry Mander. Katie took to Facebook. So my, my Facebook post said, like, hey, I want to end gerrymandering in Michigan. If you want to help, let me know. Smiley right. face emoji. Mm-hmm. Um, and even at first, it was, like, definitely not viral how people think about it. It was, like, 10 people actually commenting and saying, like, yeah, I've actually cared about this for a long time, too. Let me know what I can do. So our media ask was basically... Um, hey, if you want to actually help plan what it means to do this, like join this Facebook group that had Mm -hmm. the super trendy name of Michiganders for nonpartisan redistricting reform. Oh, that's sexy. (laughs) Yeah, right? And I spelled nonpartisan (laughs) wrong. So that was like the icing (laughs) on the cake of how how destined it was to amend the Constitution. Great organizer, not spelling B-champ. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) She got immediate buy-in. But people were bringing their election fury, their Trump versus Clinton throwdown, to the Facebook group. 
I had to shut that down pretty quickly and establish some norms. And so I just naturally kind of was like, hey, there are so many places online where you can go and talk like this. And that's totally cool. And you should go do that. But here, this is the working group. And if you want to be a part of it, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight to end gerrymandering in a way that doesn't advantage or disadvantage any Michigan voter based on who they voted for. So you were that moderator. Yeah. And I don't know why. Like, it just immediately came to me. And I think it was because I... Working a full-time job with an hour commute both ways, like I was in grad school. I just like didn't have the time and energy to be helping <laughs> put something up like, that I didn't like. I'm not <laughs> here to help you all rant. There are other places to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, if I'm going to try and do this really big, scary thing, I want it to feel like how I hope democracy can look and not just be more of this like really horrible, divisive election we just got out of. Katie wanted to make change and focus on the bigger picture of democracy. That's something everyone, regardless of party, wants, she thought. In Michigan, Katie could bring forth what's called an initiative to change the Constitution and stop this partisan gerrymandering. There were just three simple steps she had to follow. Step one, write the language of the initiative. Write constitutional language, the thing you actually want to change. Step two, get strangers at Walmart to sign a petition. Gather a bunch of signatures. For us, it was 315,654 registered Michigan voter signatures in 180 days. And three, get voters to vote yes. Get the majority of people at the general election to vote yes on it. So I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, here's our three steps. Mm -hmm. And then we just needed to like plan backwards from that. And I didn't know how to do any of it. I had no idea how to write constitutional language, no idea how to gather signatures. I had never stood on a corner at a grocery store asking people before. But like we live in a country and in a state where we're allowed to try. Now, there's one clarification I want to make for anyone who believes a viral Facebook post is what builds a movement. It is not. Katie's post was one tiny step in a much heavier lift. It helped her meet her would-be army, lawyers who believed in her cause, former journalists, willing door knockers. But then Katie had to take her show on the road, from digital life to physical life, where people could meet face-to-face. She organized town halls across the state of Michigan. Civic engagement is so important, and especially on an issue like this, especially with... So was it those 33 town halls and 33 days that got you to the thousands of volunteers that that you basically created very quickly? I think it was the start of it. And this is at a time when, in Michigan, one of the leading stories is how politicians are refusing to meet with their constituents. Or if mm. they're holding a town hall, only 10 people are allowed in and only oh, three wow. people are approved to give this like pre-COVID. questions. pre-COVID. This was not yeah. for safety reasons. Mm. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. This is 20, you know, 16, 2015. Um, and then we had these former journalists who are helping us get on like the local rural radio stations. Mm-hmm. And we were saying like, hey, we want to hear your voice and we want you to be a part of the process. Uh And so you seized on the politicians shutting citizens out of town halls to say, we're the people's alternative? I think so. Like we didn't, Hmm. I I didn't recognize that at the time until I was in this, um, 
at this meeting where standing room only a library at like Saturday morning, 9am. And I was like, what is everyone doing here? In Sandusky, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy goes, I have no idea what this is. I have no idea why you drove across the state for free. But he was like, we have ha- never had a single politician who's like a Congress member, even a state senator, stop by in this city. Not once for my whole mm-hmm. life that I've been voting. He's like, and now you're coming here to talk to me about something. I still don't understand it. He's like, here's $100, though, because this matters. And, and wow. just something clicked where I was like, I don't know why I'm here right now in this moment and why it's made such a difference. But like, gosh, it sounds like we need more of this. And we need mm. more of like actually Mm. letting people be a part of the political process. That's so interesting. And so, I mean, you're also describing a situation of luck because it's like you're riding a wave that you you didn't realize it was swelling. Totally. Totally. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I don't know if you're on Facebook at all, but there's like this thing where there's like time hop or something where it'll show you what you posted years before. Your memories. Yeah. It's months in. This memory pops up that was from like maybe two years before where I made almost the exact same Facebook post. (laughs) <laughs> it was like, hey, I want to do something about gerrymandering. Who wants to help? I think there was even like an emoji and mm. not a single person even liked it. Not one. Interesting. And I thought about that a lot. Yeah. And just the yeah. timing and like, what does that mean? What was your lesson from the Facebook flashback? You know, I think that one was that like timing is everything. Um, but I think another really was that like, those little nuggets or ideas that are sometimes in the back of your head, there's a reason why you care about something. Maybe you haven't figured out exactly why or what it is, but like to not ignore those things that are like, yeah, bugging you. <laughs> uh huh. But maybe you gotta kind of figure out the way to approach it over time. Yeah, because one of the biggest things, once you have to, once you're on a political campaign and you're talking about the same issue over and over and over again, like you really need to love why you're fighting for that. (laughs) (laughs) That only got stronger and stronger, honestly. How did your family members react to what you were doing? So at first, like, none of them knew what gerrymandering was. So my whole plan was like, oh, cool. We'll all, like, meet and we'll plan and we'll talk about this and it'll be great. And all of them were like, what are you doing? Uh-huh. Um, but what one thing that was really helpful is, like, my like my mom joined the campaign almost right away. And we don't uh-huh. see the eye to eye politically. And so every single thing I posted, every single video I made, I kept trying to think about, like, what would make her feel welcome too? Like, I already know what's going to make my friends feel welcome or like people who think like me, but like, what is going to help her feel like this is a place for her too? And how do we stay rooted in that? Most of Katie Fahey's relatives were supporters of Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. Katie voted for Hillary Clinton. One day, Katie and Katie's mom were out together collecting signatures. They knocked on the door of a woman who happened to be mom's friend. This woman a Republican, said the campaign was lying. It was bad for her party, and she did not trust them. And I froze. Because mm. if that was me and my friend, I would have probably been like, oh, gosh, this is so awkward. And and we didn't grow up talking about politics, so I've always actually felt really weird talking about it. And mm. my mom, like, without a beat, she's like, actually, it is completely nonpartisan, and let me tell you why. And it's fine if you don't want to sign, but here's why I did. Mm. And 
that mm-hmm. moment like changed my relationship with her fundamentally because it felt like she was standing up for me too. Not only this idea of democracy, but also like being her genuinely yeah. yeah proud of me fighting to 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 stand up for what I believe in, even though she could you know beforehand could have cared less about gerrymandering. <laughs> Did she fall in the Trump or Bernie camp? A Trump supporter. You heard that all the time. There would be neighbors who were like, how the heck did you get my neighbor across the street to to put one of your yard signs in their yard? They're like, we don't agree on anything. And I'm like, yeah, I think you both agree in fairness and wanting a system that doesn't disadvantage or advantage you based on who you vote for. And they're like, really? And then they'd come out like on the street and start talking to each other. It was like what I had hoped democracy could look like. The state board gave its stamp of approval today for a proposal that... After months of door knocking, Katie's team got the signatures they needed to move forward. 394,000 signatures that today were accepted by the state board of canvassers, putting it on the November ballot. Let's talk about money. Katie was a volunteer for the first 18 months of her campaign. She took aggressive steps to cut down her cost of living. She was in grad school but stopped going. She had a full-time job, which she kept, but she started slacking at work to make time for her campaign. Her boss noticed and told her. I think you really have to see, is there a way that you can fully be working on this? Because when else is this opportunity going to happen? Oh, and and was your boss also kind of saying, you're not really doing your job here anymore? <laughs> yeah, she was, I think. But <laughs> but was Got also it. like, if you need to work two hours a week, like literally was being so flexible and nice oh, wow. at trying to make sure I could take care of yeah. myself. But yeah. If you want to fund the work you're passionate about, find another job that will pay you for your <laughs> livelihood. Yep, yep. The campaign needed money, too. Katie was inspired by the example of Bernie Sanders. He famously jumped online and raised millions in small donations from people all over the country. Katie tried to do the same and got schooled. Okay, if you're not a person who's like on TV all the time and like getting a bunch Mm -hmm. of press and have a big audience, you can't just do that. (laughs) It doesn't Mm. just happen. Mm. Um, So one Mm. of the things I learned pretty early on was like, I had to be really comfortable with things that made me uncomfortable to talk about. So printing petitions, Mm. $40,000, $40,000. And I was like, where the heck are you going to get that? It's the question she posed to her inner circle of volunteers, which had grown quite large. Okay, well, right now there's 400 of us. Mm-hmm. If each of us find 10 friends that can give $10, we can actually fund oh, okay. this and our lawyer overnight. Now, mm-hmm. not everybody did that, but by taking the time to break that down and being really transparent about like what was being donated, what needed to be paid for. That's so funny. So, so it wasn't like, please fund us to take on the death of democracy. It's like, please fund us for our Kinko's bill. Yes. Our first (laughs) press conference, we were like, we need donations. And I think one of the reporters was like, what kind of donations? I was like, well, money, but like, also like, if we're going to have thousands of us gathering signatures, like we need pens. This guy drives (laughs) two hours to drop off 200 pens that were like this bank branded pen that he had at his house. And he's just like, so sweet. And I was like, what? People are willing to do that? And and it just felt magical that way. Is there a moment where you pivot from that to big checks? Like, do you ever get the big checks? We did. You know, it, 
It, so we knew that about we needed about ten million dollars to win, and that wow. was based off of okay. I know, which is an overwhelming number. Um, yeah. But so we are, what was it? I think forty days out from the campaign, and we've been working mm-hmm. on it nonstop every single day for the last two years, and finally we get this call where we're going to have a matching five million dollar grant, meaning that we have mm-hmm. a pathway to $10 million. Wow. So like one donor called and said, if you get 5 million, I'll give you the other five. Yeah. It was amazing. And had you, had you raised anything close to 5 million up until that point? No, we had raised about $2 million from about 13,000 people at that time. And that was 30, the the 13,000 number was 33 times more than any other ballot initiative had for like number of people donating. All right, we're doing a lot of numbers here. Okay. So then you were how were you able to raise the five million given that you'd never done that before and you were already breaking records? Well, in politics, something I had learned is like nobody wants to be first. And one of the other things that was working mm-hmm. against us is a lot of political donors, even though for years they had been talking about, yes, we want to and gerrymandering, because we weren't associated with the Democrats and we weren't associated with the Republicans no one trusted us. They all thought, oh, you must be actually working with the other people. And we're like, nope, we're just like not in this system at all. We don't work in the political industry. We don't run campaigns Mm. normally. We're just like everyday people. They were terrifyingly unfamiliar. A group of citizens not servant to a major party. There's big money behind Republicans and behind Democrats, but not behind unaffiliated efforts. There's another issue Katie faced. The Chamber of Commerce, lobbyists for business, they stepped in after her team got those hundreds of thousands of signatures, and the Chamber sued the campaign to block it from moving forward. Funded by foreign money from Canadian oil pipeline corporation Enbridge. A Canadian oil giant wrote the chamber a big check. They ran into court to block voters from even considering the ballot proposal. Katie's wealthy fans, who could also write big checks, got scared. Nobody thought we could make it through the Michigan Supreme Court because it had acted really partisan. Our judges are um, nominated by a political party in Michigan. And so the majority of them were for the party that was currently gerrymandering. You'd seen there was a lot of political pressure. So a lot of people kind of felt like, oh, it's really nice. What you're doing is amazing. But like, I'm not going to bet on a losing horse. There was something to us being this feel good story, but like not enough to give us money if we were going to (laughs) lose. The feel good story only takes you so far. Yeah, exactly. To be fair, it wasn't just the wealthy donors who got scared. Katie was shaken, too, to her core. Throughout the campaign, she would record these videos of herself and post them on social media to keep her base connected to her journey. Hey, everybody. Um, I wanted to do an update. And normally I do this either. The night live. that lawsuit is filed, I believe it's the night it was filed, you recorded a video. Uh, it's uh, April 26th. 2018. And in that video, I, I watched that you were kind enough to share it with us. Court case. It's made it feel really real. <laughs> in that video, you were quite teary. What if something does happen? What if it's not possible for a group of people to band together? And what if it still doesn't matter? 
it struck me, Katie, because, you know, you have like a perpetual smile kind of painted onto your face. It's, it's, you know, people aren't seeing you on this podcast, but, you know, your resting pose is a smile, right? Yeah. (laughs) And in this video... To do everything right as much as you can. You know, you talked about if you still work so hard and you, you lose. And then you still lose. That's not the America I want. That's not the America I want. You went to a, for you, a pretty dark place. Yeah, there were a couple things. I think being inside the political machine, like I already knew that it was bad, but being in it, it was so much worse than I had realized. Like there were so many barriers and so many mixed interests of people saying one thing, but doing another and just trying to make you fail. And Mm. I so wanted to believe in that America that I was taught about in like fourth or fifth grade, where like, if people come together and they debate their ideas, maybe they can make something even better than they could have thought of on their own. If we're thrown out for this political reason, like, Maybe democracy is dead. Like, maybe it's not worth fighting for because it is just too overwhelming. And, like, maybe I need to move. Or, like, maybe (laughs) I need to stop pressuring my friends to vote because, like, yeah, maybe it doesn't matter. What it made me think of, and I say this as a fellow American, is kind of how innocent we are in this country. Like, I have friends in other countries who kind of joke about how we Americans think if we just try hard enough, it should all work out. <laughs> totally. like, where on earth does that happen? <laughs> Nowhere. Totally. Well, and that's how I think, especially because I was just coming out of college and stuff that it's always like, oh, young people don't vote and young people don't pay attention and blah, 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 blah. And I think I was like, wait, hold on. We are though. Like we are paying right. attention. And we're also like trying to amend the constitution. And there are thousands of us. And so I think I was like, no, no, all the things that you that society keeps telling me just needs to happen like you're like i'm doing all of them yeah it's yeah. happening so like if it doesn't work then then like this place is broken i don't know what i'm doing this yeah and like and again i had always been on my friends to be like no your vote does matter and it's like maybe it doesn't i was just having one of those moments katie did you post that video I didn't actually, because part of that video was me reflecting on how do I go and talk to people when I don't see the path forward right now. In those town halls, one of the questions I got at every single one was, isn't this impossible? And it was because Mm. there have been ballot initiatives that have gotten thrown off in court. And all these people who had been hopeful before, and now they're like basically saying like, why should I actually trust you when my experience has taught me this isn't worth it? And I was like, Mm -hmm. and I don't have an action for people. I I can't be like, yeah, so go like stand outside the Supreme Court justices houses. Like that would not be what you do. Like it was one of those moments where it really was like, it is up to these seven people and they hold all of the power. Katie, that feels so evolved to me because I mean, you're basically saying your job as a leader It's not to be the smartest person in the room, but it's to be the person who holds hope and a path forward against other cynicism. And so you knew in that moment, I should not emote to the group. 
if I did, it would be more for me than them. It would be more for the like, okay, other people can tell that I'm sad and worried. And that Mm. isn't what thousands of people who just spent a year and a half of their lives needed. If we're just going to already assume we lost, like there's no need for that and it's not going to be helpful. Voters are now getting a voice in how the state draws its political lines in the future. The Michigan Supreme Court came down with their verdict. In favor, four to three for Michiganders voting on gerrymandering. In favor of Katie's team. She beat the lawsuit. They raised $5 million in small donations. And they got that big $5 million check from the donor who did not want to bet on a loser. The proposition moved on to the ballot box. Billed as the biggest midterm election in a generation here in Michigan and around the nation. In November 2018, two years after she started her campaign, she won. Michigan yesterday voting in favor of Proposal 2, which will change the way the state's political lines are drawn. The win was decisive. Michiganders voted 61 percent for, only 39 percent against. The state killed partisan gerrymandering. Instead of politicians being in charge, an independent commission of citizens would decide on how to divide up districts. A balanced commission to draw district boundaries for the state House and Senate, as well as the U.S. Congress. After the break, Katie and I talk about how she did not lose faith, particularly in the face of her many, many haters. I felt like I could see their noses being turned up to, like, us peasants daring to try and amend the Constitution ourselves. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Let's talk about haters. You had a lot of haters, Katie. I did. That's another thing with leadership. Uh, You have to be really okay with not being liked. There are the haters you expect, but the ones that really hurt are the ones you thought were your friends. Katie Fahey built her ragtag volunteer army and assumed groups that had been working on voter rights for decades would be psyched to meet. She was mistaken. Katie's campaign buddy, Kobe McMaster, told me about one such meeting where they were met with rejection. It's not time. We're not going to do this yet. We don't think you have the experience or the uh, maybe even the ambition to accomplish this. So we're not going to help you. Tell me about that one. Hit me in the gut. Um... That was one of those moments where I had always heard the term like, and not that they were all liberal, but like liberal elitism. And like I, in these meetings, I felt like I could see their noses being turned up to like us peasants daring to try and amend the constitution ourselves, even though like we had been doing the research we had, you know, we were all taking it so seriously and we had caught mistakes they hadn't. And I think that added to stuff and just was... Yeah, really disappointing. You know, a lot of our volunteers were like, if we don't get these groups um, endorsement, 
then we aren't working on something good. And that makes sense because these groups are validators for how people vote and how they think about good governance issues. So they're like, if this group doesn't endorse soon, I'm going to quit as a volunteer. And I think they saw that power and they were trying to push that against me. It's interesting what you've just done, the way you explained a little example of liberal elitism, because I can really see it, you know, Um, and how people who maybe don't speak with the right kind of polished pedigree or credentials get smacked down in the places where, you know, they think, hey, aren't you, aren't you, it's like, you want to stand for me, you don't want me to stand with you. Exactly. And and just seeing that with these groups that I really trusted, and especially these leaders that I looked up to and felt so privileged to even be in the room with. Like one of the things I loved about our policy team is like, we had a birthing doula. This is her like full-time job from England, <laughs> from England, who made one of like our core policy pieces. And we had a veterinarian and an HR um, lawyer and uh-huh. like, you know, me, somebody who crawls around in garbage cans all day. And we had come together to listen to thousands of people and wrote like this bad ass constitutional language. And then you know, you're right. in this room where then all of that power is taken away. And it's like, hey, but we've got a room full of constitutional experts who've like argued in front of Supreme Courts. And so like they are going to trump you every single time. And that's where it was like, no, no. Isn't there like a healthy mix where we can celebrate both and like recognize that like we all have something to contribute? Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't that. Look, let's talk about another kind of hater. OK, Um The kind I lovingly refer to as the mansplainer in your life. (laughs) I was looking at various interviews you did. Welcome back. Our guest is Katie Fahey, who's leading the petition drive to change. Like there was this one time where this man was like, well, Katie Fahey, you're trying to coalition build. That means you have to have people in your coalition. You're trying to coalition build. Who's in your coalition? Uh, How did you deal with that? Because, I mean, you had a smile on your face. (laughs) It was interesting. You know, part of it, especially during the campaign, being a little underestimated really did help in some ways. But it is, you know, one of the things that's kind of bothersome, I was the campaign manager. Like, I... I, yes, did interviews and I, yes, could give like the the visionary speech where I could talk about how we could accomplish this. But even when I'm on a panel of like other campaign professionals, I get asked the like, how do you say so enthusiastic when the person next to me who didn't even run a campaign, doesn't know how to do a field operation, gets asked like, what kind of tactics do you use to make sure that like Mm. you're reaching this kind of voter? Mm. And I don't know why it bugs me so much, but I think it's just kind of like a... Like you don't get the expert questions, you get like the feel-good questions. Yeah, and our campaign was really innovative in a lot of those traditional ways. They're some of the things I'm most excited to talk about, to be like, oh, actually, like I know you normally would look at this and just have people like text people they don't know or whatever, but we did this instead. And I never get to share that which I think is part of what well. you know, well. Katie, I may be doing a version of that with you and I apologize for it. Um, but I think the reason I'm asking you for a bit of your inner life in the face of things like mansplaining is because, you know, our listeners include many people who want to do a version of what you've done. Maybe not on the issue of gerrymandering, but 
disrupting systems, taking leadership, being someone who is dismissed but saying, no, I'm going to take over or I'm going to step up, I'm going to lead. And I think that part of what you manage to do is wade through constant underestimation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a big part of it was understanding the stakes of what would happen if we failed, which to me was another Flint water crisis could happen. Katie is referring to Flint, where mostly Black citizens were poisoned by dirty water. And the decision to let them drink that water was made by a local official whose power was secured by gerrymandering. It's unfolding about 70 miles to the north, the toxic tap water in Flint, Michigan. And I am in this moment at this time in this opportunity where I have the ability to try and prevent that. Mm-hmm. And if I don't work as hard as I can to at least try, then I don't know if I can live with myself afterwards. Like, even if I try my hardest and I fail, like, I will at least know that I didn't have to keep going to work every single day hearing about how school children can't drink water mm-hmm. and know that I didn't even try to do something. And I, I actually think going back to, like, the elitism part, like, part of why it's so easy for people to kind of dismiss the everyday folks who are actually impacted by not having representation is like, they don't have to live with the consequences every day. They don't have to, they aren't in the city that you're not drinking brown water. Exactly. And for thousands of us, we were, and we saw that and we actually had an opportunity to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter if people were underestimating me or dismissing me because like every single day, I knew that we were working as hard as we could to actually make the change, regardless of whether somebody else thought we could Mm -hmm. do it or not. And the worst that would happen is that we're stuck with the status quo. Mm -hmm. Where do you get that inner stability from? Um, Because, you know, being someone who can keep her eye on the prize when being condescended to while leading, it it's actually, it would be really easy to become resentful, to feel your ego wounded. I think it's because there were other people depending on me. One of the things that people kept saying to me that I was so shocked by every time was like, I didn't know I was allowed to try. And I don't know why you think you can try, but like, I wish I would have had that. Or I wish when I was younger, somebody would have let me know that I was allowed to try and change the world. And that really just stuck with me. I always just come back to like, there are other people that I'm here defending. It's not about me. And those people aren't stupid. They are brilliant and creative and like dedicating their lives where they could be watching Netflix instead to trying to make the world better with no compensation, with no guarantee. And so like, I've got to try my hardest because in some way, my actions and what I'm doing is going to impact their ability to do that too. You also had to deal with I mean, you could call it political advertising or propaganda, um, but but ads and robocalls that were really dishonest, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just want to understand a little bit about, because it sounds to me like you were surprised by how dirty people could play. I was. You know, you... I was at a conference where the person next to me said my Facebook post was a hoax. And I'm just like sitting there in front of this room of people where I was like, what? Like, how do you even Mm. respond to that Mm. for the whole time? Like I was totally okay if we lost. And what I mean by that is like, 
if less than 50% of Michigan didn't want an independent commission and they liked that politicians drew the lines instead, I could live with that because that's democracy. If you lost fair, if you lost fair and square. Yes. But not if you lost because of games. Yes, because it was like, that is exactly what we're fighting against. You could see people purposely trying to manipulate other Michiganders, people who lived in Michigan, to try and trick them into thinking that something they might like, they actually don't like and they should be afraid of. really just a power grab by those who can't win at the ballot box. You did this two days, they say, after Trump won, and so you thought the way to get back is to redraw the map. It's actually the complete opposite. And it just bothered me to my core because it was what we were fighting against. So then to see it be one of the reasons we might not be successful, it just was like maddening. And to hone in a little bit on this issue of honesty, one person says the Facebook post was a hoax. Did you have other experiences of people spinning who you were? Yeah, I mean, they um, they did paid advertising. We actually got some radio stations to remove the ads because they were so false. Uh, they wait till the last minute so that you can't challenge them in court as easily, which is really frustrating and a tactic oh, wow. I learned about. Mm-hmm. I was at the... Um, one of the nominating conventions, the Republican nominating convention, and they actually played this ad that featured me. Their supposed leader even flew to New York to party with Hillary on election night 2016. Does that sound independent to you? Saying I was like partying with Hillary Clinton and all this stuff where I was like, I mean, no, I don't know any of these people. Katie was among thousands who showed up at the convention center in New York on election night 2016 in support of Clinton. Katie was not invited to a Clinton soiree. But this man comes out furious, just a voter. Mm -hmm. And he's like screaming at me. And he's like, how could you do this? And in that moment, I actually just, I was a little, I was afraid I was going to get hit in the face. So I stepped back because this man was like red and clenching his fist. But I had this like very clear realization of like, of course you're mad. If you just saw this from a group of people you trust, that's telling you that we're actually just trying to secretly load this commission up with like special interest lobbyists, like I would be furious too. Mm. But I took the time to pull up the constitutional language and to talk to him in a like real way. And he, you know, ended up actually saying he wanted to vote for it and apologizing. But like, Mm. I knew that we couldn't do that at scale. Mm. How do you do that in 40 days to millions of people who are getting these attack Mm. ads and who are being told by these people they trust that like this thing is actually a huge threat to the very things they care most about? One of the things you come to learn is in the 11th hour, that's when the dirtiest ads Mm -hmm. come out. That's when the dirtiest tactics come out. They come out at the time where, sure, maybe you can go to court, but the battle's fought by then. It's over. Mm -hmm. What's the lesson you learned from that as a political strategist? That the long-term intentional relationship building we had been doing for the year and a half, the going to those communities over and over again, getting their input on what this constitutional language should be, getting their input on where should we gather signatures, that that actually mattered and helped insulate Mm. once those validators started coming out saying, no, no, trust us, we're going to feed you all Mm. these lies. People could have this guard saying like, that doesn't quite smell right. Like I may, they might still not know which side to believe necessarily, but it's like, but I've been talking to these people and they did come to my town and like, they did take my input and Mm -hmm. they did send me the policy to read. And so your process integral to it 
in part forced by the fact that you just didn't have a ton of money up front to to pay for publicity short of human relationships. It seems like you figured out a way to build a lot of trust. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and community. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was having this really bad day um, during the campaign. And normally in those moments, I was like sitting in my car, I like pulled over the side, I got a speeding ticket. It was great. Um, (laughs) Crying at like two in the morning. Um, I don't cry a lot just as a disclaimer, even though (laughs) this interview might make it. Second reference. Got it. (laughs) Um, Not a crier. Okay. Yeah. Normally in those moments, I, I would feel really like helpless and alone, but I had this moment where I started thinking about how I now knew somebody in like all 83 counties of Michigan who weren't willing to give up on the world, like who were also willing to stand up and and want to make the world a better place. And they had decided to trust me, even though they had no reason to. I did not have like some kind of fancy background. I was very transparent about not knowing what I was doing. And yet they decided anyways, they would trust me. And I trusted them back. And I don't know, I think about that kind of a lot. You expanded the size of your family. Yeah, exactly. My lessons from Katie Fahey. One, pay attention to the voice in your head. If there's a problem you keep thinking you want to solve, keep looking for the moment when you can actually solve it. Two, Know when to ask for cash. Do it when you can convince others you've got a clear path to success. People love a winner. Three, the most credentialed people don't always know what's best. Don't fit their mold. Use the strengths you have. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you think, feel, something, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends and family. Also, let me know what you think. You can text me, 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. Oh, and one more thing. We are going to have a very special announcement soon about NFTs. And to prepare for that announcement, you may want to go back and listen to last week's episode with Kevin Chu. Thanks. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.